It's probably safe to say that everyone likes capital gains. It's also safe to say that those who have capital gains are probably not thrilled about paying capital gains tax. At the same time, there are communities all over the country that don't have a lot of capital investment, that don't have housing markets that are as robust as the national economy. So what if you had the opportunity to pair tax relief in one sector with direct community benefit in another? Welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And today we're going to talk about uh, opportunity zones. This is something that whenever I'm out on the road at a conference, there's at least one panel with 10 people on the stage talking about opportunity zones. This is one of the hottest topics in in the housing industry right now. And and this is something that uh, we spend some time uh, with uh, on the research side Trying to uh, trying to understand better, you know, where it, where the uh, concept came from, how how it works, and and uh, you know what some of the implications are. You know, in research, we often we touch on a lot of things: rents and vacancies, affordability, all of those kind of things. Anything that's kind of going to affect the the housing market, and especially the housing market as it affects affordability um, and serving our mission, we always take a take a look at those kind of things, and. In this case, Opportunity Zones is, as you say, you see it as you're out on the road and you hear people talk about it. I mean, you, people can Google it. It's something that we wanted to take a look at as well. Um, Kevin Burke um, from the Multifamily Research and Modeling Team is here together with us today. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, and we've largely, um, Kevin's put together a bunch of content, um, put together in two papers, and uh you know, we'll kind of step through, I think, some of the key, key points of those today. One of the things we definitely want to start with is, you know, what is Opportunity Zones and where does it come from? Sure. So Opportunity Zones was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed in December of 2017. And the entire goal of it is to create a program that uh, can help incentivize uh, the flow of capital into um, economically distressed areas. Um, the, the, the program is meant to be very simplistic, um, so there's not a lot of um, like hoops that investors have to jump through. There's not like too much to understand about it. Uh, it it's, again, meant to just be very simple and uh, a- allow for many distressed areas throughout the country to um, experience some type of economic revitalization. With that goal of economic revitalization based on your research, what have you seen as the role of multifamily development related to opportunity zones? Sure. So certainly opportunity zones, like we've already discussed, is a major development in the multifamily industry. Uh, So this is a program that will likely funnel billions of dollars uh, into development all across the country. And so multifamily is a very large component of opportunity zones or the, the, the opportunity funds that um, uh, will go into opportunity zones. So out of all funds, and there are over 100 now and um, still growing. Yeah, I thought it was interesting during the development of the papers, right? You would come in with a draft and there would be some number of funds and then you would come in and there'd be a higher number of funds just like weeks later. I know between the two papers, I think we quote a couple of numbers because of that phenomenon. 
Yes. So there are, there are different numbers in each paper. That was definitely the one thing that I had to update most often um, because it, it really did keep changing. And uh, throughout time, though, we saw that about 70% or so of funds had multifamily as one of the investment focuses. And so this totals somewhere in the ballpark of $20 billion so far. Uh, likely that much will not be used solely for, uh, for multifamily because funds will normally have uh, multiple investment focuses. So that's really just assuming that a fund will use all of that money for multifamily, which is unlikely. But in any case, it's still a pretty staggering figure. Yeah, so I think one of the, the hallmarks right, of, of the Opportunity Zone program was to try and attract a different set of investors in, into these markets. Uh, so, right, so thinking traditionally of, of a multifamily investment, you, know, you, get, you get tax credit investors. Uh, that's what we think of for, for affordable housing. You know, tax credit investors tend to be banks with CRA needs, uh, or you get you know, real estate firms that you know, do, this for, do this for a living all day, every day. Um, but in opportunity zones, it, it seems to be a little bit different. So, so uh, you know, who are we seeing as the uh, typical investors here? You know, as, as you've analyzed these funds. Yeah. So, Libby said, uh, investors come from all over, uh, all over the economy in, in multiple different industries. So it's it's not just real estate um, um, organizations pouring money into real estate. It's anyone with any individuals or institutions with capital gains. So individuals who would not have otherwise invested in real estate may find opportunity funds to be very attractive among competing investments. That's well said, Kevin. I think that the way that you show that then in the paper also is the economics of how it looks for them, right? I think that the, the first table in the first paper speaks to the fact that uh, there's definitely an economic incentive to invest in these areas wherever, wherever the capital gains come from. Yes, that's right. So in our example, uh, it, it's meant to be totally hypothetical. It's very simplistic. It's really just meant to illustrate the roughly the relative difference between a traditional investment and an investment in an opportunity fund. But what we find is that if you were to start off with the same amount of capital gains, uh, if you were to put it into an opportunity fund, the total return would be pretty significantly higher than that of a traditional investment. So, the, Kevin, there, there are two, two aspects of the fund, of the opportunity fund model, right, where there's an advantage over a traditional investment, right? There's the upfront capital gains tax relief uh, if you're investing your capital gains, right? And then there's also another uh, another uh, discount, at least later, when you realize the gains on the new investment. Am I understanding that right? Yes. So the first one you're referring to, um, you know, like how that one works is that if you take capital gains and you put it into an opportunity fund, then you don't owe any capital gains tax on it right now. All of it's deferred. And if you keep it for at least five years, then it will be uh, the amount that you pay will be less by 10%. So you only have to pay 90% of the capital gains tax. And if you keep it for seven years, that increases to 15%. So 
within that first advantage, there's sort of a dual advantage of it's deferred, and then when you have to pay it, it's less than it originally was. Then for the second primary advantage then of an opportunity fund is that if you were to hold the opportunity fund for at least 10 years, you don't experience any capital gains tax on the opportunity fund itself. Well, so th yeah, that's certainly, uh, I, I can see why that would be uh, attractive to, uh, to the non-traditional real estate investors. Um, and, you know, often, often what I hear about a lot is, uh, uh, you know, growing interest sort of in the affordable uh, housing community. Like, can we pair opportunity zones with tax credits? Um, and so this question gets raised a lot. And, and the answer I keep hearing is like, yeah, you could. Uh, but the traditional tax credit investors don't really have capital gains uh, to invest. And, and uh, it often becomes sort of a discussion between uh, the tax credit investor and uh, their accounting firm and their, their legal counsel, you know, to figure out, do they in fact have capital gains and how might they invest it? I just want to pick up on that just for a second, Corey, is that I think that's really interesting, um, the, the thinking of the folks in the tax credit space, which, and that one is a very established program and it's really focused at the property level, right, where will this property get developed and will it serve affordable households? all you know pretty much established up front right and uh and thus you know this pro those properties get selected for getting tax credits and and then be, be being built and providing affordable housing a difference with the opportunity zones are these are place-based right so instead of focusing on the property and how it's going to serve affordable um this this program is looking at the overall geography um, and so it may be a little bit less focused on, on serving affordability. So, so let's talk about how, how that works. So this is a national program. There are opportunity zones all over the country. Uh, so let's talk about how they get selected. Right? It's a, it's a multi-step process. It is a multi-step process. Um, eligibility requirements are a little bit complicated, but essentially it begins with a very broad-based national rule for what can be included in opportunity zones. Uh, the rules are a little bit complex, but for the most part, it's based on income and poverty levels. Uh, so median income must be below a certain threshold, uh, and that threshold depends on where the opportunity zone is located. But generally, incomes must be 80% or below the area median income. Uh, for poverty rate, it must be uh, equal to or greater than 20%. I think that one thing that distinguishes the process for opportunity zones, and I know that, uh, Kevin, you do a lot of work on this, is there's, as people determine affordability rules and, and say like how we count um, our very low income goals or as we look towards, you know, uncapped areas, um, we're often looking at the granular data, whether it's at the county level, tax, uh, the census tract level, and building from the bottom up what are the characteristics of this community um, in this one, it was interesting that governors were involved up front. So people were making judgments. So, um, and they were saying, we want capital to flow to these areas, and they think that it would benefit these communities, and, and especially with a focus towards, you know, wh where, there's an, where there's especially a need. 
And I think that, you, like you quote poverty, um, uh, we captured, I think, in table one of the second paper, some of those characteristics, with, which then showed um, they were fairly effective in choosing these, these areas if that was their target, right? Yes. So, yeah, so what we find is that opportunity zones are generally going to have uh, lower incomes and higher poverty rates than other areas, which completely makes sense because the only areas that are eligible are those that are lower income and have higher poverty. But what's more interesting is that, um, Steve, as you touched on, there's, there's kind of that, there's the pure quantitative part, which is looking at income and poverty. Then there's the more, a uh, little bit more qualitative part in the, the governor's decision of which places to actually designate. Um, what was found in a study by the Urban Institute is that the census tracts that governors chose had higher poverty rates than all eligible tracts and lower incomes than all eligible tracts. So in summary, you know, if, if you look at all census tracts throughout the United States um, versus all tracts that are eligible for opportunity zones, the opportunity zone eligible tracts are going to have lower income and higher poverty. And then the ones that were ultimately chosen had lower incomes than that and higher poverty as well. And I think that's a great outcome. I think that in, in this case, you know, asking people to step in and think about where they want capital allocated is, uh, is something that benefited the program and, and potentially uh, is, is better serving some communities that really need that, that additional capital to flow into them. So, so Kevin, just you know, thinking back, you know, the past eight years or so, um, you know, and I know you looked at this in in the paper, uh, business and opportunity zones versus outside of opportunity zones, uh, and then compared to multifamily market originations overall. So, all of these trends were generally going up, right? We were seeing a, a growth in a growth in our business, a, a growth in the multifamily market. I think what's remarkable, though, is sort of that share of the business or the growth specifically in opportunity zones, um, you know, in the past you know, three or four years, that seemed to, to really outpace the market by a fair amount. Uh, do we have a sense of what accounted for that? Uh, yes. So a lot of what is driving that growth is the growth of our small balance loan program. So in the... Uh, the first graph in the paper, uh, Corey, like you mentioned, we see that starting in 2015, the growth of our Opportunity Zone business far outpaced that of non-Opportunity Zones. And like I said, a, a, a big reason for that is the success of the Small Balance Loan Program. So that's that's a great point, Kevin. And, uh, and I think it, just to reiterate, um, we uh, developed a small balance loan program, um, and the idea of that program was it's a segment of the market that we're not in, um, but on top of that, that, it's a segment of the market that's not highly amenitized. It's mixed into a lot of different neighborhoods, and it will be a relatively affordable segment of the market. And so when we look at the business that we've actually been able to do as that program has grown, it has been uh, accretive to our very low income goals, certainly. And then here, we had no, 
you know, incentive to do business in opportunity zones because they didn't even exist when this program started. Um, but it's an area that, as we've discussed, is, is where capital would, would benefit those communities. Um, we found that we've been growing that business. And, uh, and I think that's just that's a great statement on the Freddie Mac business. And I think it's, it's just reflective of, of how we approach um, the multifamily market. And when we develop new programs, it's for the purpose of serving communities that really need the capital, serving households that really could benefit. And, uh, and Corey, I know that uh, it, any number of programs have been um, created in recent years, and they generally all start with the view that we want to serve um, affordable households. Oh, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, there, there's another aspect of this that, that sort of implied in in your in the data and the, the small balance um, does suggest right, that the properties in these markets tend to be smaller as well, right? There's something uh, that you know a little bit uh, different about the the housing stock in in some of these areas. Uh, is is that a fair conclusion, or were you able to look into that level of, of detail? Yeah, we do find that although the percentage is still low a relatively high percentage of properties in opportunity zones are located in rural areas or otherwise outside of metro areas. I, I would suspect, Kevin, that, that, if you, uh, that if we look into the rural markets a little bit further, too, we'd probably find some differentiation between uh, the micropolitan markets and, and uh, the non-micropolitan, you know, sort of more extremely rural, uh, uh, rural geographies where just generally would seem less likely to see uh, see multifamily properties, um, and that that focus right so on the smaller properties on on some of these uh, uh, less served markets right that that also ties into uh, on the affordable side right targeted affordable express new program uh, you know, that is growing in, in business definitely designed to to uh, to serve these markets and, and to reach these to reach these properties. Kevin, when you looked at the opportunity zone funds that have formed so far. Did you find that any had specific geographic focus beyond just locating investments in opportunity zones generally, like maybe in rural markets? Um, I don't think that I've seen anything with a specific rural focus. Most of them will have a geographic focus based on state or just general region of the country. And I think that that's, it's probably pretty unlikely that there's um, uh, that there's going to be a rural one because there's so, like there's so many so much capital to be placed and so little availability probably there. So, uh, right. So certainly there's a lot of focus on the, the five to 50 unit properties. Kevin, you talked about the small balance loan program. Um, has that changed over time? So the past several years since the small balance loan program came out, what have you seen in the data? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we see that in 2015, the percentage of properties that um, went through the small balance loan program uh, was for opportunity zones and non-opportunity zones, it was about the same. They were both about 30%. But we see that both opportunity zones and areas outside of opportunity zones have grown SBL business uh, quite considerably since then, but that the opportunity zone portion was much greater. So in 2018, Nearly 60% of properties in opportunity zones were uh, went through the small balance loan program, and that was 
uh, compared to just a little bit over 40% for non-opportunity zones. And Kevin, I think that's a great point about uh, the growth and the effectiveness of the small balance loan program. But I just take the the other side of that and say, like, you know, even as we're getting up to these levels that are 58%, that means 48, four, I'm sorry, 40% of the business basically is coming from our con- our conventional or our, our targeted affordable, more um, bigger properties. And so it's, it, so I would just highlight that, yes, the small balance is successful in this, but uh, that's, but other segments of the business are, are effective in serving these areas as well. Is that an accurate read? Um, yes, I would say that it is. And because, uh, you know, we saw earlier, we mentioned earlier that there was, there's a high percentage of units in opportunity zones that are affordable to very low-income households. Consistent with this, we find that a very high percentage of units in opportunity zones go through, or of properties in opportunity zones, go through the targeted affordable housing line of business. So we've talked about the incentives for being in uh, opportunity zones and that investment funds are certainly growing um, and that some of these funds will flow to multifamily to benefit affordable housing. But it's not just that that's the focus, right? Right. So opportunity zones allow for a wide variety of investments. So there are some exclusions, but for the most part, uh, anything that can help to revitalize an area is um, is eligible for um, for opportunity funds. So, uh, for example, uh, you know we we talked a lot about multifamily, but there's also other types of commercial real estate and um, even like local businesses. If you want to invest in a startup, even that's um, at the qualifying use for an opportunity fund. Um, you know, one other aspect of this, right, so that that we do seem to hear a, a lot about and and uh, see articles about is, is, you know, is there a, you know, are there some concerns about you know with this lack of restriction, uh, what might, what might happen, uh, in the markets where where there is you know suddenly this, this uh, substantial flow of of investment, um, you know, in your survey of of the market, uh, you know, what what have you been seeing? It's it's very difficult to tell at this point. I mean, funds are still being uh, created, and really the investment activity hasn't um, uh, really taken shape yet. It's it's really early in the process, and uh, really until capital gets placed and investments are made, and and we see how much com- competition there is, and how aggressive pe- people build. Uh, or people invest, how that changes the characteristic of those neighborhoods. That's when we'll really learn about that. I know uh, something that would be interesting to us would see, you know, do property prices increase more in opportunity zones in the near future, near middle or near and midterm uh, relative to non-opportunity zones? And if that were the case, is that driven by robustness of those communities or is it driven by capital being incented to go there and hopefully it would be um, either way supported by the cash flows that are produced by those investments. Yeah, and, and I think um, you know, what's interesting is that there are over 8,700 opportunity zones throughout the country, and um, I mean, very likely not all of them would receive 
any type of investment. So it, it's really going to be interesting to see which opportunity zones um, can attract investment, whereas um, maybe others will not. And I think it's very possible that the more rural areas will not see quite as much capital, whereas the opportunity zones in urban areas likely would to a greater extent. We talked about uh, the uh, tax credit investment and, and sort of the interest in, in tax credit properties, and, and certainly some of that is uh, the idea. The idea is there are these markets that will that will attract more investment, um, and so I think two parts of that. One, how through through uh, investment can we preserve affordable housing? So I think that's one of the drivers on the on the tax credit side, and and the other is sort of the, you know, can you maximize the the uh, impact of of available subsidy to get more affordable units built. Uh, so, Kevin, in your analysis uh, thus far, have you seen you know much presence of other programs in addition to opportunity zones, sort of overlapping in these same markets? Maybe I haven't seen many. I know that for you know, like we talked about LIHTC earlier, um, there might be like there there are some states that are actually putting into their qualified allocation plan. Um, they're, they're they're trying to incentivize LIHTC in opportunity zones. So like um, how we talked about that, um, it's likely that the same investors in LIHTC are not going to be the same investors in opportunity zones. States are still using the designation of opportunity zones to incentivize development. So essentially then what the... Uh what the states are doing through their their QAPs is trying to uh, layer on preservation activities and, and new affordable construction with that other investment to yeah, sort of reap the public benefit of both, uh, even if the uh, tax individual tax credit investor can't, uh, can't get double the benefit of capital gains tax relief plus tax credit equity. Yes. Kevin, thanks so much for your work on this and for joining us here today. Looking forward to doing more work with you on Opportunity Zones in the near future. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.